Thank you, brother, for that kind introduction. Our sermon text today is 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 8 through 11. It's 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 8 through 11. And we are just about at the end, almost at the conclusion of our study through 1 Peter. Um, I'll, I'll not have the final word on Peter's letter. Um, our brother... Uh, and Pastor uh, Jeff has very wisely left himself one final opportunity <laughs> to come back next week and clean up any messes that I might cause today. So Lord willing, he'll be back in the pulpit next week. Let's have a word of prayer. Our Father in heaven, thank you, Lord, uh, for the opportunity that we have today to come together and worship you. We thank you for your word, Father, and allowing us to sit before it. We pray that you would Use it to strengthen us, to edify us, uh, so that we might serve you more faithfully and to glorify you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. First Peter chapter 5, verses 8 through 11. This is the word of God. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. One of the most prominent themes we see in our study of 1 Peter is suffering. In fact, that really is the main point of the letter. Peter is writing to persecuted and bewildered Christians and is encouraging them to stand firm in their faith despite what following Christ may in fact cost them personally. They may not have at this point begun to be officially persecuted by the Roman government uh, or the civil authorities, uh, but they were certainly insulted, slandered, marginalized, um, ostracized in many cases, and beaten and harassed by mobs and things like that. So not only does Peter exhort God's people to suffer well for Christ, but he even takes it a step further and reminds us that it is, at times, necessary. It's necessary um, to suffer for Christ. In chapter 1, uh, 1 Peter compares the testing of their faith to that of gold being tested by fire. Uh, before gold is put to any good use, it is put to the fire to remove dross and all the impurities and things like that uh, from it. And it's only then that it has any, any real value. Uh, in First Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 6, this is what the apostle writes, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation 
of Jesus Christ. Here, Peter tells us that it's the fire-tested genuineness of our faith that's more precious than gold that results in praise and honor and glory at Christ's appearing. So we can most assuredly say that God is glorified when his people suffer well, when they suffer faithfully. And so just as gold is purified and made worthy of honorable use by being put to the fire, so the faith of God's elect is being purified, strengthened, fortified, and being tested and grieved by various trials and afflictions. And so just as Peter has made it clear throughout this letter that those first century Christians should expect suffering, affliction, and persecution, here again at the end of the letter, in our text today, he reiterates the point. In preparing uh, in Jesus, listen to the words of Christ, in preparing his disciples for what following him would eventually cost them, this is what he said, John chapter 15 Verses 18, beginning in verse 18, is he says, our Lord, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, because I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. So this is not a surprise. It's a very common theme that we've been talking about. Our, our brother uh, Jeff has done a great job at uh, explaining these past months. But, uh, and, and so what, what Jesus is saying there and what Peter writes in this epistle makes it clear that those original readers that were, um, pardon me, uh, that the original readers would, it would be normative for them to expect persecution, trials, and afflictions. This would be not the exception, but rather the rule. That's sort of what we're, what we're seeing. You may recall, uh, as we read a few weeks ago in chapter 4, when Peter said this, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes, as if something strange were happening to you. Do not be surprised by the fiery trial when it comes as if something strange were happening to you. But as Christians today in the United States of America, this seems a little bit difficult for us to relate to. Amen? American Christians have enjoyed a way of life that very few Christians throughout history can even comprehend. We don't even have to really go back in history, just look around the world today and there are millions of Christians all over the world in different parts of the world that suffer great violence and persecution for a professed faith in Jesus Christ. But we have experienced very little of anything like that at all in our lifetime in this country. Being a Christian in the United States of America doesn't really cost you anything. It's the Lord's Day today. On our church Facebook page, we openly put that we're, we're meeting for Sunday school at 945 and worship at 11 o'clock. And here we are. 
No one's kicking down our doors. No one's barging in and arresting us. Not one of us um, was harassed on our way here this morning, unless maybe you were driving too fast. Not one of us is here under any real threat this morning. In fact, most of us today when we leave, we'll go somewhere and have a very nice lunch and enjoy the rest of our day as God's people. As Christians in this country, we've benefited by having a government that has protected and ensured our right to worship God and practice our faith freely and openly. We've been largely insulated from government overreach that would violate our conscience. So we've been given the right as Americans to practice our faith and to follow Christ. Historically speaking, however, we've been living in a way that most Christians throughout history would not, would not understand. As a result of this, I think most Christians today in this country are asleep at the wheel. Asleep at the wheel. The uh, famous quote from the German philosopher George Heigl is the only thing that we learn from history is that we learn nothing from history. You see, we largely tend to operate under the assumption that what was yesterday will be tomorrow. Isn't that, as Americans, sort of how we live our life? This is the way that we, that we think. This experiment that we've all been a part of, called the United States of America, and American idealism has fogged our memory and is blurring our vision of what I believe is staring us right in the face. In this world, there are only two options. Hear me. It's Christ or chaos. Christ or chaos. Without God's objective truth to anchor what is good and right and just then what is good and right and just just becomes subjective to human reasoning. And we know what the human heart is, and we know what the human heart is capable of. It's wicked, desperately wicked. So chaos is what you eventually get if we don't have Christ. When you don't know up from down, when we don't know left from right, we don't know right from wrong, we don't know male from female, good from evil. Everything is upside down and right side up. That which is moral is conflated with what's immoral. What is good is being called evil. What is evil is being called good. Um, and that's exactly what we're seeing today. And I think everyone here can sort of understand what I'm saying and, and sees what I'm talking about in our culture. My question is this, are you truly seeing things as clearly as you should, or are we looking at the societal landscape that we live in through rose-colored glasses? Do we have a false sense of security because we're Americans? Peter gives us some good advice. Back to the text. 
in verse 8. Listen to what the apostle says. He says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Of course, when Peter wrote these words, they were in a specific context. And he in no way was thinking about people like us 2,000 years later in some far-off land. He certainly wouldn't have been thinking about uh, the types of insanity and things that we deal with uh, today in our context and things that we have to interact with. But the warning that Peter gives to the original readers is every bit as applicable to us today in our time because uh, the principles, the underlying principles of what he wrote are exactly the same today. The world hates God and denies that he has, in fact, spoken through his word. That's what we're up against. And Satan is doing everything he can to lead the people in the world in their rebellion against him. That's what he's doing. That was true then. It remains true today. And because, because of that, as God's people, even as Americans, we must, we'd be foolish not to expect fierce opposition. Fierce opposition. It's only by God's grace that we haven't experienced fierce opposition and persecution here in this land up to this point. So what does Peter mean when he says, be sober-minded? Peter gave the same type of exhortation in chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 7, he says, The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. So in its strict literal sense, the word that Peter used meant not to be intoxicated, meant to be sober-minded. Uh, but as our uh, brother Jeff has pointed out a few weeks ago, that's not at all what Peter was implying. That's not at all what, what he meant. What he was saying was to be alert, to be awake, uh, to be focused, to be sober-minded in this sense or in this context means to be clear-headed, to be aware of what's going on around you. Peter was warning the church to be alert and awake and sober-minded because of the persecution and trials and tribulations that were inevitable. Remember again what he said in chapter 4. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as, something, as if something strange were happening to you. Don't be surprised. This is not a strange thing. This is the expectation. As I mentioned before, suffering due to persecution was to be expected for the sake of the gospel. Peter is charging up and exhorting the church to stand faith, uh, stand firm in their faith, and to expect the road to be rough, to be ready for fierce opposition. In fact, Peter's language there is much stronger than that. He, he warns the people of God not to be surprised or caught off guard when they, meet, when they are met with a fiery trial, a fiery trial. 
How many of us today can say that we've been met in our life in this country with a fiery trial? I can't. I cannot. Just a few days ago, uh, some brothers and I were in a discussion about what it means to faithfully preach the Word of God, to um, honor Christ with the preaching of His Word, and uh, we all agree that it is to communicate what the author meant to communicate to the original audience, a grammatical, historical exegesis, but then to apply it to today. Why does it matter? Take the principle that's there and apply it to us today. If we fail to do that, we're, we're just sort of spinning our wheels. So I guess my point with all of this, why this matters to us, is because I'm inclined to believe that in large part, American Christians today will be surprised when they're met with a fiery trial. We will be caught off guard. We won't be ready for that day because, generally speaking, we're not sober-minded in this sense. One of the things that I love about this church, one of the reasons why my wife and I decided to be here with all of you, one of the things that's most appealing is, is the the liturgy in our worship service. I love the call to worship, our time of prayer and preparation, all the things that we do keep Christ central in our worship and keep us in our proper position uh, in relation to Christ. The confession of sin, the reading of the gospel, the way that we work through the catechism, all the things that we do, it's very edifying and God-honoring. But what does that look like in your life when the doors are chained shut? What does that look like when your pastor or elders have been hauled out to jail or thrown in prison for faithfully preaching the entire counsel of God's Word? It's a legitimate question. I'm not being paranoid or delusional as some may, may think, I'm just paying attention to what's going on around me. I'm listening. I'm watching. I'm trying to be sober-minded in this regard. I'm listening to the media speak about radical Christian fundamentalists and how they're a threat to democracy. i got a news for you. They're not talking about the radical fundamentalist Christians that you or I may be thinking about because they're out there but that's not who they're talking about you know who they're talking about they're talking about you and me we're the radicals that are a threat to the democracy that's what they're that's what they're saying they're talking about us we are in fact beginning to be categorized politically with extremists Racial bigots, hate mongers, domestic terrorists, Christians are being put on those lists by certain governmental agencies. 
It may sound a bit extreme. You may think that I'm just trying to drum up fear, trying to, I'm a fear monger, or I'm trying to, to scare you in, in some way, and nothing could be further from the truth. I'm not in any way trying to make you fearful. I'm just trying to raise these questions now. I'm trying to talk about these things now so that when we are met with the fiery trial, you won't be fearful. You won't be afraid. It will be your expectation, and you will be prepared for it. You'll be prepared for it. When we begin to be marginalized in this day, and in our time, when we begin to suffer the persecutions that have eluded us as American Christians for so long, we'll be ready for it. We need to be sober-minded and watchful. Because as Peter says in the second part of verse 8, I'll redirect us back, he says, Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. The situation is real. And on this, you know, there's, there's much that could be said about the devil and his prowling around and seeking to devour. I think issues and matters related to him are largely misunderstood, confused. But for the sake of time, I, I'll have to be a little bit more concise, but suffice it to say that all the things that we've been talking about, all the persecutions and the, the labels that are being thrown at us and just the debauchery and the things that we see in our culture, all of these things are very much by his design and fall within his purview. The trials and afflictions and persecutions that Peter writes of and the threats that I've mentioned here today are very much in the realm of what Satan is trying to do, very much what he's trying to do. There's no doubt that human beings in their natural state resist God, deny God, hate God, rebel against God, and wreak havoc in the world. But I don't think there's any doubt whatsoever, no question whatsoever, that the secular mindset and the movements that we see going on in the world today that are such a danger have a demonic and satanic influence. He, that's Satan, the devil, has fostered a bloodthirsty culture that craves death. We see that very vividly in the pro-choice movement. The pro-choice movement. Only the devil himself could be so cunning and manipulative to convince millions of Americans that by legalizing the murder of the unborn, they are actually promoting women's health care and basic human rights. Only he could be so crafty to do that. If you dare to oppose it, speak against it, Oftentimes you're labeled as a white supremacist, a Marxist, or a fascist. In Ephesians chapter 6, Paul very clearly, I think, identifies the nature of the struggle that we find ourselves in today. Listen to what 
The Apostle says in Ephesians chapter 6, Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness. And the, and the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So Paul's saying it's, it's not so much that we aren't wrestling with flesh and blood. It's not so much that we don't have adversaries that are human beings. And we're not, not that we're not wrestling against the government and the authorities and all the secularists and all those things. Because that's the way that we see our threats manifest right in front of us. We are dealing with those things. We are wrestling with those things. But more... We're wrestling with the demonic and satanic forces behind those things. The cosmic powers, as Paul puts it, we wrestle against the cosmic powers that are over this present darkness. And I think that's an important distinction to make because the real battle is a spiritual one. The real battle is a spiritual one. You see, we can make a logical argument against abortion, or against the government saying that it's virtuous to operate and mutilate the bodies of children to help them transition to a different gender. I can make a logical argument against that from the perspective of logic or, or natural law. That is the, the law that God has written on everyone's heart, the, the basic understanding of what is right and, and wrong. But logic and natural law can never consistently change people's mind who are convinced of this kind of debauchery. It's only the gospel of Jesus Christ that has the power to do that. Those are no doubt, the things that I've mentioned, those are no doubt um, the agenda from the left, um, no doubt, ploys by the devil to persecute the church. I shared a video with some brothers the other day. There's a documentary out called What is a Woman? And it's frightening. It's frightening. The level of the debauchery in the mindset of millions of people is breathtaking it's breathtaking so many people are just swept away minds are just strongholds in their minds just have them completely deceived in so many ways and it's so widespread i don't think i really i think we underestimate just how widespread this type of thing really really is and so you know when, when i when i see people and i hear people talk up in, in this way, watch these people on, on the documentary talking about and have all this confusion about gender and all, everything. My initial response, to be honest with you, is just to look at them with contempt and disdain. And I just wanted to, to dismiss them and just I just want to turn it off and I don't even want to think about it. But then I'm reminded it's only by God's grace that I know the truth. 
if it were not for God's grace, I'd be right out there with them, marching in the streets with a debauched mind. It's only by God's grace that I'm any different. They're being devoured, manipulated by Satan into destroying themselves. Now, you and I are insulated from that type of destruction. We, you know, the God of all grace is writing his law, his word on our minds and in our hearts and is conforming us to the image of Christ. So I don't, by the power of the Holy Spirit, I don't have to worry about being taken captive by that kind of thought or that kind of thinking. But make no mistake about it, our adversary does seek to devour us as well. And the persecution and the trials that we are likely to face in the future have their roots in these very things that I've been talking to you about this morning. The secularist um, mindset and agenda, the radical left, these are all ploys by the devil. The faithful people of God that refuse to go along with that type of ideology will be labeled insurrectionists, anarchists, and we will begin to be persecuted. But notice what, he, what Peter says in verse 9. Notice verse 9. He says this, Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Resist him, firm in your faith. There's a bit of irony in this. Peter exhorts us to resist the devil by being firm in our faith. And there's no doubt uh, this is a, a very common theme in the New Testament. Many places we read similar sentiment. Uh, just as Paul had been stoned and left for dead, just after that, they, you know, the disciples, they come and pick him up and clean him off and they go on down the road, and it, it says in Acts 14, when they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch. That's where he was being persecuted. Strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue faith, continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. The apostles, this was their expectation. They knew the type of debauched minds that we face in the world and the opposition to Christ and his word that we would, we would expect. And then in his letter to Timothy, listen to what he says in verse 12. Indeed, all who desire to live a, a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. All people who desire to live a godly life will, should have this expectation that has eluded us for so long. The interesting thing about all of this is that the apostles are exhorting us, exhorting the people of God to remain firm in the faith, 
And it's also because we are firm in our faith that we will be persecuted. You see, you see that? <laughs> it's, uh, it's, it's very interesting. It's when the people of God remain true to God's word and make the culture around them subject to it that they face opposition, that they begin to be persecuted, that we will begin to be persecuted. But pay close attention to what Paul says in verse 13 there in his letter to Timothy. He says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, verse 13, while evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Imposters of what? Who's he referring to? Imposters of Christians. Apostates. The word Christian is a lot like the word Baptist. It kind of depends on who's using the word, on what it means. It doesn't, it's not just a large term that we just has an assigned value and we know exactly what it means by no, when no, no matter who uses the word. There are a lot of people who say that they are Christians who would identify as our brothers and sisters that we know to be apostate, that we know to be to not have the shared faith, right? Not the people of God. They are imposters. The world does not have a problem with the idea of Jesus Christ. It's only when we begin to proclaim who he is and what he actually said and what he actually taught that we have the problem. There's no problem at all with a Jesus who is affirming and tolerant and just allows you to do you, never offends anyone. Nobody has a problem with that Jesus. But it's the Jesus that commands repentance, obedience, repentance and belief, and to deny anything and everything, if it comes down to it, to follow him. That's, that's the Jesus that the world hates. The Jesus that finds you in your filth and picks you up and washes you clean forgives your sin, sets you on a new path, and through the power of the Holy Spirit conforms your sinful mind to the mind of Christ. That's the Jesus that we find in Scripture. and That's the Jesus that the world hates. The people that follow the woke Jesus won't have any problems at all. The people that call themselves Christians that follow the other guy? It's no problem. They'll get along just fine in this world. No one has a problem with a God that says whatever they feel is good and right and just. That's not offensive to anyone. Because what is good and right and just with that God is subjective to our own sinful nature. We can make it whatever we want. No one has a, a problem with that. But 
for those who contend earnestly for the faith, that's the true faith, and we see that a lot in Scripture, contend for the faith. Not for your faith or for that person's version of the faith, but the faith. Contend earnestly for the faith. For those who do that and who are committed to preaching and teaching and proclaiming the entire counsel of God's word, and for those of us who desire to sit underneath the authority of the entire counsel of God's word, those people, Peter warns, to be sober-minded. Sober-minded. Be watchful. Not be shaken or surprised when you're met with a fiery trial for the sake of that faith. At this point, you may be confused, uh, or even uh, some people may be discouraged or, or doubtful about the future, about all the things that, uh, that we've been talking about. But that was not Peter's perspective at all, and it certainly isn't mine. Verse 10 says this, back to the text. Peter says, And after you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Last week, our pastor struggled as he reached the last few words of verse 7 when Peter tells us to cast all our anxieties on him because God cares for us. You know, it's impossible really to convey that the real depth and magnitude of that, of a God that cares for you. That kind of love can only be demonstrated and understood through the cross of Christ. That's the only place you can find it. There's no other love comparable to it, and even the most eloquent of speech is utterly incapable of doing it justice. And likewise today, as we find ourselves at the end of this passage, I too am tasked with a job that is too big. It's too big for me. As we consider Peter's words here regarding the God of all grace. Any comparison or analogy that might be exercised would surely fall flat and prove to be unworthy. And so here in verse 10, the Apostle Peter, after warning us of what the devil is trying to do, what Satan is desiring to do, he redirects our thought entirely to God and what God will do. That's the emphasis. That's the emphasis of what God will do. In fact, what our adversary the devil is attempting to do pales in comparison. It's no match at all for what God already has done by calling us to an eternal glory in Jesus Christ. It says, 
the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ. That original word there that Peter used, that we see in English as called, meant to be summoned, to be called out, to be, to be summoned. Some might even say to be invited. You might, might see that in some commentary. But if there was ever a word in the New Testament that we could refer to as being a loaded word, it's this one. You know, when someone, you say something and they say, well, that's a loaded question. Well, this is a very loaded word called. Because of the, not because of the basic meaning of the word, but rather because of the implications of how the word's being used. How the word was put in this context and how the way we see that same word in um, related passages of scripture. Romans chapter 8, verses 28 through 30, no doubt a very popular and common and familiar passage but listen to what Paul says in verse 28 beginning he says and we know that for those who love God all things work together for good for those who are the called according to his purpose for those whom he foreknew he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and those whom he predestined he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, these he also glorified. It's a very loaded word. It's difficult to even comprehend the calling that we've been, that we've been called to. So when Peter reminds us that we've been called to an eternal glory in Christ by the God of all grace. He isn't telling us that there is a possible way of escape or he's given us a, a chance to persevere. But rather, we are assured in every sense of the word that we will persevere the fiery trial that we no doubt will meet. No matter what our adversary may seek to do, no matter how he may try to destroy us or to devour us, we can be absolutely certain of the ultimate victory in Jesus because we've been called. We've been called to it. We've been destined to it, appointed to it. Just as Paul says in Romans 8, those who God predestined, by the way, that means predetermined by God's choosing. He did this. He chose to be merciful and kind to you and to me. You were predestined to be called. And then what does it say next? The ones that he called, he justified. That means to be made right before God. All sin, all debt wiped away, justified before in your standing before God. Those who were called were justified. And those who he justified, these he also glorified. We can't even begin to 
to really talk about that. This passage is often referred to as the golden chain of redemption. You may, you may hear it referred to in that way. It's because what, what this is, it, it it's so powerfully illustrates that if you are in Christ Jesus, you are in this unbreakable chain of salvation from eternity to eternity that the devil has no power no no way to affect no way to to disrupt in any way so try as he may to create chaos and wreak havoc in our lives nothing he can do can separate you from the sheepfold of god last week pastor jeff did an excellent job of of illustrating that no matter what trials or persecutions or afflictions that we may face in this life, no matter the complexity of them or how extreme they may be, they should only be considered a light affliction, a light affliction compared to the glorious grace, our inheritance in the glorious grace of Jesus Christ. A light affliction. So because we have been called by God to eternal glory in Christ, what temporal affliction or fiery trial in the grand scheme of things should trouble our minds in any way? In any way. Paul addressed this very thing as he continued in Romans 8. I'll just read it. It's a bit lengthy, but it's, it's so powerful. Listen to what he says on this very topic. Paul says, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies, who is to condemn. Christ Jesus is the one who died, and more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, and who is indeed interceding for us. Who is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sakes we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Paul says, no. In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else, in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. We as God's people can have an unwavering confidence and hope about our future. Not just our future in eternity, but what is right around the corner. Not just in our eternal state, but here and now, next week, next month.
we know that the road that we will travel on is most assuredly going to be dangerous, perilous, difficult. But we also know that the God of all grace is bringing about his plans, his purpose. He's fulfilling his purpose right before our eyes. Even our trials and afflictions serve a higher purpose and will result in God's glory. God is glorified when his people suffer well. When they suffer well. In the end, it's God's justice that will be on display for every eye to see. And the people of God will be entirely vindicated. Entirely vindicated. Peter says it this way in closing. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. If you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, and you don't share in this unwavering confidence and hope that the gospel of Jesus Christ provides, turn to Christ today. Repent and believe. That's the biblical command, is to repent and believe. Repent of your fear and ask the God of all grace to establish you. Let us pray. Most gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the spirit that you've given us to, to lead us, to guide us. We pray, God, that you would use this time today, you'd use your word, you'd burn it in our minds and on our hearts, you would strengthen and equip us to live a life faithful, to live a life worthy of the calling that you've called us to. Lord, that we'd be bold, we would live boldly and trust, trusting in your word, in your truth, knowing that your grace is in every way sufficient for us.